So uh, today, I just want to continue our series on joy that we started last week. Uh, last week was kind of an introduction. We titled the series Joy to Be. Uh, and this week, just continuing on with that, I wanted to move into uh, repentance and why repentance is important and why repentance plays such a big role in our lives, uh, how repentance affects our joy, uh, and how a lack of repentance is often used by Satan uh, and how Satan uses misinformation about repentance and about God uh, in our lives to basically strip us of the joy that God has called us to have. And I uh, just want to remind you that that doesn't mean that we'll be joyous all the time. Uh, like I said, it doesn't mean that we'll always be happy. Uh, I mentioned that last week. Believers are often challenged. We often experience a great deal of suffering that God uses to grow us. Uh, like we talked about last week, we can find joy in the middle of the hardship, in the middle of the suffering, knowing that God plans to use it for His glory, and He plans to use it to grow us. Um, so today, we'll be in uh, Psalm 51, and it is a passage uh, where David is actually suffering, is going through a great deal of emotional and spiritual distress. Um, he's struggling a lot. So... Uh, I just want to give us some background information about this passage. Many of you are probably familiar with it. You know about King David. Uh, you know that he was one of the greatest kings of Israel. He was one of the better ones because many of them were not very godly, and David was most of the time a very godly man. Um, but he struggled and he sinned, and he fell short just as we do. And what's so incredible about this psalm is that David is real and honest with all the people of Israel, but it's also a model for us of what repentance should look like, of what our prayer lives should look like, what our relationship with God should look like. Uh, so the Psalms are deep and they're powerful and they're real. Um, many people read the Psalms and they weep. It crushes their heart because they feel exactly what the authors of the Psalms are saying, exactly what they're saying. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of really, really great information uh, that this passage has to show us. Uh, before we just dive too deeply into it, uh, I want to give you some background on David and about this psalm, like I mentioned. Uh, so, this psalm takes place, David writes this after the events of Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And in Second Samuel 11, we see David, the, God, the godly king of Israel, who is meant to lead the nation, who is meant to show the people what it means to have a relationship with God, what it means to follow him. He's taking a stroll through his palace on top of his roof, and he sees a woman bathing, and her name is Bathsheba, conveniently named, right? She's taking a bath, and instead of turning his eyes away, he continues to look. Instead of seeking purity, he continues to watch her. So David then sends his servants to go ask about her and then to bring her back. And David learns that this is the young wife of one of his soldiers named Uriah the Hittite who would go on to do many great things or who had done many great things for him. He was an excellent warrior, a great soldier, loyal a good man. In many ways, a man that reflects David's godly character. So David ends up sleeping with his wife. And then, 
Bathsheba comes back to him and says, hey, I'm pregnant now. And here we see the first issue, the first way that Satan tries to steal our joy, which is he tells us it's okay to cover up our sin. He tries to tempt us into covering up our sin. And that's exactly what we see David doing. This is a godly man, right? This is a man who refused to fight back when Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear after Saul had found out that David was going to be the king to replace him, would be the king that replaced him. This is a man who was very obedient to the Lord, who slayed Goliath, who had great faith. He went out there against a giant with a stone and a sling. This is that man, the man that is described as a man after God's own heart. So he devises a plan. His plan is to contact his general, Joab, to bring Uriah back. And he's very sly. He says, hey, tell me, tell me how how the battle's going. How's Joab doing? How are the other troops doing? How's morale? How are things going? Standard conversation. Standard military report. And then David tells him, go home, wash your feet, relax, spend time with your wife. Uriah instead sleeps at the door with the king's servants. When David hears about this from his servants, he calls Uriah to him and says, haven't you been away on a journey? Haven't you been at battle? Haven't you been at war? Don't you want to go home? And this is what Uriah says. The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah saying, I don't want to partake of any of those things because I don't deserve to have it better than any of my men. I don't deserve to have it better than Joab. He's loyal to David. He's loyal to his men. Like I said earlier, he resembles David's character earlier on in David's life. So Uriah resembles God in his loyalty and his faithfulness to his people. And then David, really adamant about Uriah staying there, says, okay, why don't you stay here for a couple extra days? Why don't you stay here a couple extra days? And he attempts to get him drunk, hoping that he will go home and sleep with his wife. And Uriah never does. He never loses his conviction. He never goes home. He never does what David's hoping that he would do so that David could save face, right? Because David doesn't want anyone to know about his sin. And this is the second thing that Satan does. He tries to keep us and our sins locked away in the closet. And what happens? Our guilt and our shame and our anxiety and our worry build and they build and they build. And it's just us and Satan. And there's no joy because we know that we're trapped in sin. And there's no truth because we're not telling people the truth about what's going on in our lives. So... David has to come up with another plan to cover up his sin. In the morning, he writes a letter to Joab, and he sends it by Uriah's hand. And what does the letter say? The letter that Uriah is carrying is a letter about Uriah, how Uriah himself will die. He says, send Uriah where the valiant men are to the thickest part of the fighting, and then slowly draw away from him, leaving him stranded to fight all alone by himself. Remember, this is a godly man, the man after God's own heart. 
Uriah dies, and the report comes back to David through one of his messengers. And this is David's response when it comes back. Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. So what is he doing? He's deflecting. He's deflecting blame. He says, well, if he wouldn't have died now, he would have died at some point, so it's really okay. All of these things are things that we do. All these things that are things that we do. These are things that I've done. These are things that we struggle with. We deflect blame. We say, oh, well, in the grand scheme of things, it was bound to happen at some point, right? And it's no longer an issue of holiness. We forget about our relationship with God and our relationship with others and how God has called us to holiness, to joy and peace in Him. And instead, we're pursuing these other things. As we cover up our sin, we deflect blame, do all these terrible things. As the story continues, Bathsheba hears about Uriah's death. She laments over her husband, and then she becomes the wife of David. She bears him the son that she was pregnant with. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In chapter 12, we see Nathan make his appearance, who is a prophet of the Lord. And Nathan, being a godly man, tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man. A rich man with many sheep, with many flocks, and a poor man with one ewe lamb. And how the rich man takes the poor man's, the poor man's lamb, and he butchers it, he kills it, even though he has plenty, Right? And he asked David, what do you think about this? What is right? Because the king was meant to make the call, the judgment call, of how people should be punished based off of what they do. And David says, his anger was greatly kindled against the man. He says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down your eye of the Hittite with the sword, and I've taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So now we've recapped that story. We know exactly what's going on. I want to recap and bring us to our first main point. Satan attempts to steal our joy by tempting us with sin. And this is exactly what Satan does with David. So, last week we talked about how there's no greater joy You'll never find a greater joy in this world than when you are walking with God closely and personally, when you are right in the middle of His will. Satan doesn't want that for you. Satan's goal is to tear you away from God in any way he can. So David, this godly man who's the king, right? In terms of worldly desires, he should have all that he needs. That's the point that Nathan is making. And yet, Satan still whispers in his ear, you don't have enough. You're the king. You should be able to have whatever you want. You should be able to pursue whatever you want and whoever you want. 
you're under all this pressure to lead the people of Israel. And he tells us something similar. He says, you're under all this pressure at work. You're under all this pressure to provide. At home, you have to keep things in order. You have to keep your family in line. You have to get your kids to school. You have to take care of everything. If you do this, this would help you. This would make your life more bearable. If you do this sin, this will make you happy. This will fill you up. This will help you get through another day. Satan plants dangerous thoughts like these into our minds, making us think that he has something to offer us that will bring us happiness. When the things that he is offering us are actually designed to bring us down, to distance us and separate us from God. And he does this hoping that we'll latch on to one, just like David does. Again, one of the most godly men in the Old Testament. So this first, this first main point here is that David is just like us. We are no better than David. David is no better than us, right? All created in God's image, yet we all fall short constantly. But what's fascinating about this, the most fascinating thing about this, this section that we're going through, is that David already has all he needs, but still chooses sin. We see this when Nathan comes to confront David, like we just read, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7-9. through 9. So I, wanna, I want you to look at these words really closely if you're following along. And remember, keep in mind this is after he's just given him the story about the lamb. He says, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. What's he doing? He's reminding David of everything that he's done for him. And he says, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why does he say that? I would add to you as much more. Because to God, David is valuable, precious. He sees David the way he sees us. He says, what is it that you wanted? You pursued that which you didn't have when you had so much already. What's the problem? The problem is that we constantly forget who God is and what he's done for us, right? And we've talked about this before. We constantly forget the gospel. We are the most forgetful people. And it's funny because we read the Old Testament and we have, have youth students ask me all the time, I don't get it. Why do they keep doing this? And I'm like, because we keep doing it. Why do the people... In the Old Testament, pursue God and then turn away from God. Why are they stranded in the wilderness? And then, okay, they get out of the wilderness, they finally make it, and then they don't clear the land the way they're supposed to. Why do they do that? It's because that's what we do. We pursue God, and then we're tempted with sin. We have joy, and then we think, oh, but there's that over there. And it shines, and it glimmers for a second, but then it's gone. So what's Nathan doing? He's reminding David of who God is and what he's done for him. Because that's exactly what David needs right now. So Nathan's not just accusing him of what he's done wrong, but he's pointing out all of the wonderful things that God has given him. He's not shaming David. He's pointing out the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of God. That's what he's doing. And when he says this, if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. God is using Nathan to tell David, it's not like I ran out of love for you. 
It's not like my love for you is limited. It's not like my care for you is limited. There's no fathom, there's no bottom to his love. There's none. And what's really incredible is that because of this conversation, as we get ready to move into Psalm 51, David begins to figure this out. He begins to figure out what he's forgotten. In verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51, David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What is steadfast? It's unchanging. It's constant. What is abundant mercy? It's a mercy that's not limited. It doesn't run out. It never runs dry. It's always there. It always provides what he needs when he needs it. So God is saying, my love never ran out for you. But still you covet. You go after something that's not yours. Everything that God had done for David was done out of grace and mercy. David hadn't earned any of it. He didn't deserve any of it. He didn't really work for any of it. And the greatest gift of everything that David had was that he had God himself. He had a relationship with God. He had God leading him. He had God guiding him. He had what we have, what those who believe in Jesus have. And yet what David does is he trades it for something that is not as good, that's not as valuable, that's not as precious, and that doesn't bring the same type of joy, something that's fleeting. And that's something that we struggle with. We trade our joy and our relationship with God and our identity as beloved children of God who have an eternal inheritance for worldly, for worldly things. So that's why he covets. I want to look very briefly, uh, trying not to get too far ahead of ourselves, or of myself, at Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12, when David says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So when David is praying here, he's broken of his sin, he doesn't ask God for more of anything. He doesn't ask God to protect what he had. He doesn't ask God to allow him to keep everything that he used to have. What David asks is not just that God would restore him and help him be free from sin, but that God would restore the joy of his salvation. What he's asking God is to remind him of what it meant for him to find joy in God and in God alone. Because there was a point in his life where he said, I have God. And that's it. I don't need anything else but God. That's the ultimate prize. That's the ultimate treasure. At the end of the Bible, Scripture tells us we have these crowns and we have these jewels in the crown because of our good works. And what do we do with the crown? We lay it down at God's feet. Why? Because we're not worthy of the works because we know that He's the only one who's worthy and that everything that we've ever done, everything that we ever will do, it was only done because of what Jesus had done for me, because the Holy Spirit enabled me and empowered me to love people and to do those things, that apart from him we could do nothing, and that the ultimate treasure is not the jewels and the crown, but that we get to spend eternity in heaven with God. That's the ultimate treasure. That's what he's saying. That's the best prize. That's the best thing. That's what we're here for. That's why we exist. Our purpose is God, not anything else. So he's saying, 
don't trade it for something cheap. Right? We've used the illustration before of the little girl <clears throat> with the fake pearl necklace. And she loves it. She wears it every day. Every day. And one day, it breaks. And she cries and she cries and she asks her dad if he'll fix it. I says, I can't fix it. And the next night, he gives her a box and has a beautiful pearl necklace. And he tells her, I was waiting for you to give up the cheap stuff so you could have the real stuff. That's what our relationship with God is like. You won't experience that real true joy until you're ready to put aside the cheap stuff that this world has for us. There's nothing better than Jesus. Nothing. And I'm pretty young, and I can tell you that. People would say I missed the, missed the uh, best days of my life. I, don't, I wouldn't say that I regret a single part of it because nothing compares to walking with Jesus closely. Um, so we continue to move through this text. I want to talk about how Satan's ploy, right? The enemy's his plan is to cause us to stumble into sin, to cause us to wrestle with all these different things. But God has given us a way out even when we fail, even when we fail to choose the real stuff over him, even when we're struggling and we're suffering, he's given us this wonderful thing called repentance. And it's beautiful. So Satan tempts us with things that are sweet now, right? Like sugar. You have sugar, right? But if you give a little kid sugar all the time, eventually it rots their teeth, right? It's good now, it's sweet now, but in the long run, you can't survive off of sugar alone. You'll get cavities, right? God's doing the opposite of what Satan is doing. He's saying, the truth I'm giving you now, the pill I'm giving you now is bitter. It's hard to swallow. But in the long run, it's what's best for you. It's the greatest thing. What Satan is giving us, it might be sweet. In the long run, it will be bitter. It will crush us for the rest of this earthly life and for all of eternity. What God is giving us will bring us joy for the rest of this life and for all of eternity. That's the contrast. That's the difference. But it's up to us to make a decision. And the greatest decision that we'll ever make is to experience the sweetest, most beautiful, and heart-fulfilling love that the world could ever offer us. And that's a relationship with God. And it's something that is actually out of this world, right? So both come at a cost because the world is asking you to leave God behind and God is asking you to leave the world behind and you have to make a decision. And that's a decision that you have to make every day. That's a decision that you have to battle in your mind constantly. Uh, and every conversation you have, with every thought that you have, with every action you take, you have to think, what am I doing? What's motivating me? What's my desire? And even as we decide to follow God, as some of you here have done, some of you here may have not, we know that we stumble and fall constantly. And that's why I wanted to talk about repentance uh, this morning. So as we work through this psalm, my hope is that together we'll be able to see how God's desire for us to live lives full of repentance will help us hold fast to the joy that God freely gives us even though we stumble into sin and we fall constantly.
So in Psalm 51, I think there's four really important things as we break it down uh, that are four crucial parts of repentance. So if you're taking notes, I'll try to really help you um, get them down. The first one is to go to God. The first one is just simple. Go to God. I don't want to elaborate on that. In verses 1 and 2, we read them earlier. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. When we go to God, here's what we have to do. We have to look at our sin while looking at the Creator for who He really is. Okay. So understand that David has just been rebuked by Nathan. The man is crying on his knees, tears streaming down his face. His heart feels broken, right? What's the first thing that David does here? He immediately goes to God in prayer. He asks him to blot out his sin. He asks him to wash him of it, to cleanse him, because he knows God's the only one who can do it. David goes straight to God, and he takes a hard look at himself. And he comes to this conclusion. The first Sin isn't worth it. And the second thing within this point is that God's character is incredible. He is loving. He has steadfast love. He is abundant in mercy. So what does he find? He finds a God that's rich in mercy, whose character consists of a constant love, who has a never-ending amount of mercy and grace for him. And David's prayer, we'll see, met by the New Testament truth of Matthew 9, 13, is this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's important that we see this, because a lot of times when we sin, our first instinct is to run from God. We sin and we're like, oh no, I messed up. I messed up, I'm not going to talk to God for weeks. When I became a Christian and I sinned, I felt like I had really messed up and I didn't talk to God for weeks, weeks and weeks. And that's exactly what Satan wants. Satan wants you to have this gap between you and God. So if we don't understand who God is and his character accurately, then we end up missing out on our relationship with God for an extended amount of time because we think that we have to be perfect to go to God and to repent, right? We think that we have to beat ourselves up enough or we think that we have to do well enough and be perfect in order to have this relationship with God and that's not true and Satan wants us to think that. He wants us to beat ourselves up like that because that's what prevents us from walking closely with God. And the truth in this this first point is that we don't have to be afraid to come to God when we sin when we fail him because he wants us to return to him the same way a father wants his lost son or lost daughter to return to him. So it's easy to let Satan push you away. It's easy to feel guilt and shame when you sin. But we have to understand that Jesus died for that. Jesus bore the weight of that so that we don't have to be pushed away from God because Jesus died so that gap would be closed. The second one is we have to confess our sin. So this is really important. We can't just go to God. We can't just see our sin, but we have to confess our sin. But what does confessing our sin mean? Does that just mean we go and we say, oh, God, I messed up. This is what I did. Here's the list. 
Okay, that's it. I'll see you later. That's not confession. Confession isn't just seeing what we've done wrong. Confession isn't just saying what we've done wrong. Confession is a crucial part of repentance because as we confess, what we're doing is we're looking at more than just our sin. We're looking at how we've chosen to believe something that is not true about God and about us who've been made in God's image, who Jesus has come to die for, right? And now our hearts have to be realigned with what's true. We have to confess and say, God, this is what I was believing, but this isn't what I should be believing. I know that you're good. I know that you love me more than any man or any woman ever could. So I'm sorry for idolizing this person. I'm sorry for putting this person above you. I'm sorry for putting my work above you. I'm sorry for finding my identity and my ability to perform because my identity should be in you. I shouldn't love anyone else more than I love you. I shouldn't serve anyone or anything else more than I love and serve you because you've loved me and served me and cared for me more than anyone else ever will and anyone else ever could. That's what confession is. That's what David wants us to see in verses three through six when he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The truth in the inward being and the wisdom in the secret heart, those are the things that God wants us to believe. Those are the things he wants us to hold fast to, right? The truths of the gospel for us. I also want to tackle verse four really quick because uh, I feel like a lot of people are confused by this and I actually think it's a really, really cool verse. Uh, So when he says, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, I think that we're immediately met with shock because he committed adultery and he murdered someone. So what about the friends and family of Bathsheba and Uriah? How could he say, against you and you only have I sinned? How does that make sense? He's definitely wronged other people. David's purpose in saying this is not to say that he hasn't done wrong, that he hasn't sinned against people. His purpose in saying this is that the most crucial and terrible part of sin, the worst part of sin, is that our sin is against God. Our sin is against the God who created us in his own image. So if anything, our sin is even worse when we hurt other people because we have hurt other people who are created in God's image to feel and to love and to care for people and who can be hurt, right? Because we experience emotion, we experience grief, we experience pain. So it's not taking away from their pain. If anything, it's adding to the reality of how awful our sin is and how God has called us away from that and to him. Really quickly, um, I want to talk about how uh, he's tried to cover up his sin. When David plans to bring Uriah back to go meet with his wife and then has to kill his wife, 
sorry, not kill his wife, uh, and then has to kill Uriah in order to cover up what David did with his wife. He's doing something that we do all the time, that I feel like I see all the time. I mean, we definitely see it in children, right? Uh, kids. I remember when we were, when I was a kid, in, in Oak Grove, and we were playing baseball in places we shouldn't have been playing baseball, and you, you hit a baseball, and you crush it, and it hits somebody's house. What does everybody do? Well, you act like somehow baseball magically fell out of the sky from who knows where, and you take off. No one knows. So what did we do? We, we covered it because we all ran to the nearest guy's house, and we covered our sin, and when the neighbor came out knocking on the door asking why his window is broken, like, I don't know. We've been inside all day. And what are we doing? We're lying. We're trying to cover up our sin. What does that do? God knows our sin. What have we done? All we've done is not take responsibility and allow ourselves to help heal and mend a broken relationship. So when we cover up our sin, all we're doing is making things worse. Not just for us, but for the people around us. Because our sin impacts people, right? Our sin is powerful. Our sin hurts. It hurts God. It hurts us. It hurts everyone around us. Believers and non-believers alike. Interesting illustration. That might gross you out. When I was in nursing, uh, we learned about diabetics and people with high blood pressure and just all kinds of things. Um, there's this thing where, called peripheral neuropathy where they begin to lose feeling. Right, their fingertips, at the bottom of their feet. So what happens to these older men and older women? Well, they step on things, like they step on nails, and they don't even feel them. Well, a big problem that diabetics have is that they have to get body parts amputated. They have to get toes amputated. They have to get feet amputated. So what do some of these guys do? Well, we heard this story one time about this man who stepped on a nail I said, I'm not going to the hospital because they're going to amputate my foot because I didn't even feel it go in. So what's he do? He wraps it in a sock and he just keeps putting socks over it. Puts another sock over it, puts another sock over it until one day his daughter comes over. She's like, it smells terrible in here. What's going on? And she realizes it's his foot and she has to take him to the hospital. And they have to amputate his foot. And what has he done? He's made his own situation worse and he's made everyone else around him throw up because it's so awful and it stings so terribly. And that's exactly what we do with our sin. We're saying, oh, I'll just cover it up. I'll just cover it up. I'll just cover it up and it'll be okay. No, you're killing yourself. You're stripping yourself of your joy because you're not following God and his plan and his will for your life. And then you're hurting other people around you and they're never being healed and they're never seeing the redemptive and the restorative properties of the gospel. They're never seeing how Jesus' desire is for us to be healed and to find something greater in him than we've ever seen before. So what do we do? The best thing we can do is exactly what we've been talking about. We go to God because he knows what we've done already. He already knows what you've done. And he loves you no matter what you've done. Now, now this doesn't mean that we get away with what we're doing, because it comes at a cost. It came at the cost of Jesus' life, right? And it doesn't mean that we get away without apologizing to others for our sin, because Scripture calls us to repent 
and to repent in front of others so that we are not only right with God, but so those people can experience the gospel transforming us right in front of them. So I just want to give you an example of that. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I wrote a note to myself when we started our gospel communities uh, because I knew I was going to mess up. And uh, Shannon was in our gospel community. He was a co-leader. He knows I would, I would mess up. You know, sometimes it's just very, very intense, as some of you know me to be. Uh, but I always try to be loving. And uh, I wrote a note to myself. I wrote this. I said, people have to see me repenting of my sin right in front of them so that they know that I'm not perfect and that it's okay not to be perfect. Because Jesus was the only one who was perfect. I'll never be perfect. I need him. And they need to know that they need him too. And that's what I wrote. And I never want to forget that. And part of that came from uh, Matthew 5, 23 through 26, uh, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells them, hey, if you're praying before the Lord and you remember that you've wronged your brother, be reconciled to them. Leave your gift at the altar. Like, stop what you're doing. Go to God. And then go to that person immediately. Go to your accuser. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the card. Garden, you be put in prison. Truly, I said to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. And uh, I just thought that that was so important, that those relationships were mended and reconciled when I, when I wronged someone or when I failed, that I would apologize and repent. Because that's crucial, because that shows them that we're humble and that it's not about us, that we're not worried about how we look. Because in God's eyes, we're beautiful already and we're valuable. We're precious to him. Uh, the third thing about repentance that we see in this, in this passage is that we are called to grieve and to mourn the sin and the sin under the sin, as Timothy Keller says. Uh, but what, it, what it means is let your heart be broken over your sin. Like be broken, feel. Feel what you've done. And there's a fine line here because I don't want you to fall into beating yourself up over your sin because that's not biblical. Um, but I feel like a good way to describe this, um, besides just reading what we have in Psalm uh, 51, verses 7 through 12, is to look at ourselves rightly. Uh, because since we have this tendency to sweep our sin under the rug, uh, and we usually tend not to like to talk about how we're wrong and how we feel bad. Uh, a good way to look at this is how we treat other people and our relationships with them. So if you wrong someone, you don't want to ignore them and prevent apologizing to them and just not talk to them because that never repairs the relationship, right? If we hurt someone that we love and we care about deeply, hopefully we're there with them and we're also grieved because we can't believe that we've done that. We're also brokenhearted. We're there crying with them in the middle of it, in the middle of the pain. So I want to read the, these verses to you. It says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So he's saying, God, I don't want you to go away. I don't want you to be separated from me. I don't want you to take your Holy Spirit away from me. I still want fellowship with you. I still want to know you. I still want to be with you. I still want to be close. That's what I want. That's how all of our relationships should be. And our relationship with God should be no different. That's the message he's trying to get across. That shouldn't change. But we have a serious issue, and I know because I struggle with it still. We like to skirt around our sin, right? We like to say, hey, God, this is what I did. Okay, I want to ask for forgiveness. All right, I'm getting out of here now, right? And I remember when Rob preached that sermon series about prayer where he talked about we have our slip and we fill it out and we just slide it underneath the door and we never actually go into the throne room. We never actually sit with God, never actually spend time in his presence, right? We don't do that. We don't sit there and pray scripture. We don't sit there and ask him, God, show me the things that I'm doing in my life that are wrong. God, show me who you are. We don't sit, we don't sit there. I don't like that. It's uncomfortable, right? And it's hard to do that. It is. But we can get there with time. So since we skirt around that, I came up with this, this illustration uh, that was inspired, honestly, by, by nature and by a friend's hat, uh, a good friend of mine that I was coaching uh, football with at the middle school. He was wearing this hat, and it just said, Into the Storm. And I was like, Into the Storm? That's interesting. Where, where are you getting that from? And he's like, I think it's this workout brand. Apparently, it's about bison, and they just like run straight into the storm to get through it faster. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I was like, no way. So I looked it up, and uh, I just thought, I, I already love nature. I think it's fascinating because God takes so many things, so many attributes about himself, and they're reflected in nature. So many things about us and and they're there in creation, which is why Scripture says God has made himself known to all man through creation, right? So every other animal, when there's a storm, what do they do? They run away from it or they go around the side of it. Bison run straight through the middle of the storm. Why? They take off at a full speed, at full speed, right through the middle of the storm. Because they instinctively know that it's the fastest way to get through it and that if they can deal with that storm, they're going to get to the other side where the green pasture is where they can graze once again. And there's a beautiful truth for us in that because repentance is like that. Repentance breaks your heart because you realize that you have hurt God, someone who has loved you more than you have ever loved anyone, more than your wife loves you, more than your husband loves you, more than your kids love you, right? You've hurt someone that loves you in a way that you can't even begin to imagine how deep and how wide and how powerful it is. And when you know God like that, it breaks you when you sin. It just breaks you. You're like David. You get on your knees and you cry uncontrollably. And you're like that sinner that Jesus describes who beats his chest, right? That's what it's like. But you know that once you go through that, and you get to the other side, the shepherd is there with arms wide open. And he wants a relationship with you still. He's saying, I'm not leaving you. I'm still here with you. I still love you. I still want you. I'm still yours and you're still mine. I still died for you. You're valuable to me. You're precious to me. 
That's the truth with that. So repentance will, will break your heart. It will be uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to realize how far we fall short of God and how wonderful and amazing He is and how He still wants us even though we don't deserve it and could never earn it. And our last, our last point here, uh, point number four, if you're still with us, let's hate our sin. Hate our sin and turn from it because that's the last part of repentance. In order to truly repent, we have to go to God, right? We have to confess our sin. We have to be willing to hate our sin and to turn from it. And we have to grieve and mourn our sin. We have to have a genuine heart, right? So he says, hate our sin, turn from it. And this is the same thing that we see in verses 10 through 12. When he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So what does it mean for us to hate our sin? To hate our sin means that we are loving God supremely above everything else. We're turning our back on our sin while holding fast to the love of God. So we're seeking to live a life of continual and constant repentance, right? This isn't something that just happens every once in a while, but this is something that happens multiple times in a day, possibly all throughout the day, every time we have sinful thoughts, every time we have these desires, every time that we struggle and fall into sin. This becomes a way of life. We become, we become repentance over the bad things we do and over the good things that we do with the wrong heart, the good things that we do in our own power. So when we say, oh, I'm gonna go do this, and then we get patted on the back and that becomes the reason we do it instead of to lift God's name up above everything else, then we have to repent of that because we didn't do it with the right heart. We didn't do it with the right desire. We didn't do it for Jesus. We did it to be known, not to make him known. And there's a big difference. And this repentance restores our joy because every time that we repent, we are allowing God to pull out the false loves and the spiritual weeds that stun our growth and that kill the joy that God intends for us to have. And we get back to that original joy that David was talking about in verse 12, that joy of his salvation that he asked to be restored. These last few verses, uh, verses 7 and 12, 7 through 12 and verses 16 through 17, I want to read 16 through 17 to you. They say this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What's he saying? He's saying, God, I know you don't desire my works. I know you don't desire me to just try hard. I know you're not desiring me to force it. What you want from me, you just want my heart. You want me to know you. You want me to seek you. You want me to love you. That's what these verses show us. God doesn't want our works. He doesn't want us to beat ourselves up. He doesn't want us to say we're sorry a thousand times. None of those things are good enough. God just wants us. He wants your heart. That's why he sent Jesus and broke his own heart by depriving his son of being with the Father, of being with himself. 
so that we would not be deprived of that same joy, but so that we could experience it fully, knowing that he loves us. So why live a life of repentance? Because without it, we'll end up void of joy, broken, alone, empty, with nothing but tears and sorrow, right? The dreams and goals that we set for ourselves, they'll never fulfill us. Only Jesus will. Uh, The last thing I want to point out in this passage is that before we ever see David commit physical adultery, he's already committed spiritual adultery. So when he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation, David sinned because he wasn't finding everything that he needed in God in the first place. And that's often why we sin, because we're not finding everything that we need in God in the first place. So that's really why we're repenting. That's our purpose of repentance. So when we get to this place, we can begin to walk away from sin when we realize everything that I need is found in Jesus. Everything. Nothing will bring us as much joy as having a relationship with him. And lastly, some of you know what it's like to fall into the arms of a loved one, someone who loves you deeply, someone who cares about you, someone who loves you, what we would call unconditionally, right? You've experienced that. I want to ask you today if you've experienced that with God. Because he desires for you to experience it. He longs for you in a way that's much greater than you'll ever know. And he longs for you to leave the things of this world behind and to come to him today so that you can know a joy like none that you've ever experienced. Let's pray.